Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, particular movies that you enjoy watching, you know, those kind of movies that when you're flipping through the channels, it always warrants at least a 30-second stop, right? Maybe like uh, Top Gun or um, Tombstone or uh, my own personal favorite, Smokey and the Bandit, right? That's a, great, that's a great Saturday afternoon watch. But we think about those stories, and why are those stories powerful? Those stories bring us enjoyment, right? They're enjoyable stories to watch, but more than that, We think about other stories because stories are not just things that we enjoy, but they're also things that can be compelling, right? Maybe we got family stories that are compelling. Like, for instance, if you're walking down the hallway today and you hear me talking to somebody and uh, I say something like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of the time Papa told me about getting run over by that steamroller. I I mean, I don't really care where you're going. You're going to want to stop because you got to hear how that story ends, right? Was he a voice actor on a Roadrunner cartoon? Like, how in the world did he, how did he survive that? That's a good, compelling family story. But stories are not only for enjoyment, not only compelling, they can also teach us lessons. Because we think about maybe in school, uh, when we were little kids, some of the stories that we read and talk about, like uh, the little engine that could, or the emperor's new clothes, or... um, Sorry, I'm trying to think of another story. Oh, yes, the tortoise and the hare. There we go. Tortoise and the hare, right? Because it's not about how fast you are. It's about how you win the race. So stories are powerful because they're compelling, because they bring us enjoyment, but also they can be used to teach us lessons that we might not otherwise immediately pick up on. We think about even biblically how stories are used uh, in the story of David, right? So right after David... Um, has the incident with Bathsheba, and it ends in murdering Uriah. Um, That whole incident has not yet come to light. And what God does is he sends the prophet Nathan to him to help him understand what's just happened and the death of his sin in that. But Nathan doesn't directly confront him. What he does is he begins to tell him a story. And he tells him about, oh, there was this poor guy, and the poor guy just had one little lamb, and, you know, he loved that lamb, and it lived with him. And there was a rich guy that lived down the road, and he had friends come over, and instead of taking one of his hundreds of sheep, he took, one of the, or he took the only sheep of the poor man. And as David's hearing this story, um, he turns into warrior David, right? And he starts putting on his armor, and he's like, all right, I'm the king. I'm going to go finish this. Tell me who did that. And Nathan looks at him, and he says, you are the man. And David is crushed, and he's hurt inside, and he realizes the depth of his sin, towards the Lord, and he's convicted to the point of repentance. And see, stories are powerful because they teach us things we might not otherwise get. They're enjoyable, they're compelling, and all these kind of things, right? So when we look at this passage here, this is a story as well. It's a teaching story that Jesus uses that we call parables. And parables are just stories where Jesus will use familiar examples to the audience in order to help them understand a deeper spiritual point. And at this point, he's talking to the leaders, but he's also talking to the crowd. 
and he wants them to understand what's about to happen. And Jesus uses familiar imagery for them because he's trying to teach them a bigger point. So let's look at 21, 33 through 46 together. In 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the, servant, or when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So look with me first at the provision of God, the provision of God. Jesus begins his parable by talking about an analogy um, of a vineyard. And it's a common picture for Israel, as Pastor Tommy read in the prophets and Isaiah and other places, God describes Israel as this vineyard. It's an apt description for God's people, right? Because when you think about a vineyard, we can see how it might relate to who Israel is. Because we live in an agricultural area, so we're used to fields and farming and those kind of things, right? I grew up, and we had a small Christmas tree farm that I helped with. Um, it was fun, but do you know what the most fun part was of farming? Farming those Christmas trees were fun in December, right? Because it was cold, and you were sitting on a five-gallon bucket with your granddad and your dad with your bow saw, just waiting for people to come celebrate Christmas, right? That's the fun part. Do you know what the not-so-fun part of Christmas tree farming is? Well, it turns out, if you want actual Christmas trees in December, there's a lot of work you got to do in July. And July is about 100 degrees, and you've got to mow, and you've got to prune those trees and shape them so they look something like Christmas trees when you get to December. But, I don't know whether you know this or not, Christmas trees have this inordinate ability to attract hornet's nests. So the really exciting part of pruning in July is when you set up your ladder and you start hearing this faint buzzing inside the tree, right? So there's hornet's nests in the trees. Also, you got to watch because you're in a field, so you might inadvertently put the uh, leg of your ladder down in a hidden uh, yellow jacket nest, right? So it's hot. It's nasty work, but you've got to do it because if you don't do the pruning in July, you're not going to end up with Christmas trees in December, we talked about the farming in this area. Some of the people even here grow grapes as part of their farming. Do grapes just happen? Do vineyards just happen? No. In fact, there's a much bigger process that has to go on. If I go out in my backyard and I, print, and I plant a uh, grapevine, I'm not a vineyard owner. I'm just a guy that has a grapevine in his backyard, Right? And if I don't do any work to that, I'm not going to get any grapes. What I'm going to get are wild grapes, like we talked about in Isaiah. Nothing that has to do with growing marketable crops happens by accident. There's a lot of hard work. You can't just expect a harvest. There's work and pruning that has to happen. There's a process of cultivation. There's a process of refining. There's a process of pruning. And there's a process of grafting. There's a process of giving it the right nourishment and the right water. It's something that has to be stewarded in order to produce the way that it's supposed to. This is the same process that God takes his own people through. Because we think about the story of Israel. God wants to put them in a prepared land, but there's a process that they have to go through. 
We start all the way back in the book of Exodus, and the people of Israel are slaves under Egypt. And God hears their cries, and He sends them a rescuer in the person of Moses. And He sends them out into the wilderness, and they immediately get to go to the land. But the problem is they're not ready to go in because they're afraid. They don't trust the God that's led them there. So they go on this 40-year process in the wilderness. And it's not just marching around the wilderness for wilderness sake. It's part of their refining process. So it takes some time. They've got to be refined. They've got to be pruned by the Lord. They've got to learn more about who He is and His righteousness through the law. They've got to understand what this land is going to be about and how they're going to take possession of it and what their purpose is going to be. See, God prepares them a promised land, but they have to be ready for it. And when they enter, God crushes their enemies and He hands them the goodness of the land. He hands them a land that's abundant, that flows with milk and honey. And it's not just for their good, but it's for a bigger purpose. See, at this stage in redemptive history, we think about Israel, and what Israel was supposed to be is act like a lighthouse. So God places them in a specific land at a specific time that's going to be at the crossroads of all the trade routes. It's going to be a much sought-after land. It's going to be places that people from the outside come. And what Israel is supposed to act as is this beacon and lighthouse that points people to how to properly worship God. They're supposed to bring those that are far from God into them and talk to them about what it means to follow God. They're supposed to bear witness to His goodness and His power and His holiness. And every aspect of their worship and their government and their cultural structure is supposed to cry out, come and see that the Lord our God is good. It's supposed to be a place where all are welcome to come and engage with who God is. So they're supposed to bear fruit in abundance, not only physically, but they're supposed to be a spiritual harvest that takes place from Israel. And God expects this harvest. He's given, this, given them this land for the purpose, and He wants them to understand that this is not just about them, but it's about Him, and it's about what He wants for all of humanity. But as often happens, what happens in Israel is they begin to turn inward-focused. They begin to forget what that original vision was, and they focus more on just the abundance of the land, and it becomes more about them and not so much about the mission that God has them on. So they lose focus, and they steadily focus on themselves instead of their mission. So we've seen this provision that God has given them in the promised land. Now let's look at the people's greed people's greed. As we read in 35, it says, And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So we see the people's greed, the people's greed in this passage. This is the point in the text where Jesus is telling his story and he set it up for them. But now the hammer drops and he gives this stinging indictment to the people and more specifically the religious leaders. That they've squandered this good gift that God has given them and the purpose has become lost. And he illustrates this by saying that uh, the master, who most of the time when we think about parables represents God, has sent his servants to them to receive a rightful harvest which he's owed. But when these servants come, the people in the parable not only refuse to give him the just fruit from the field, they instead move to act of rebellion and start to beat and kill his servants. Ultimately, when they attack the servants, it's not about the servants, it's about the master because they're actively rebelling against him. So his representatives are bearing the brunt of their wickedness. It's ultimately against God because they've attacked his servants and they won't give the fruit that's there for the rightful master. Let's think about these servants that Jesus is talking about that he sent. Who are they? It's the Old Testament prophets, right? And we read about these guys, and we can think about them as covenant police because God has a covenant with his people when he gives them the land. So when the people begin to act up, when the people begin to rebel against him, he sends guys with a word from him through the prophets. And let's think about how these prophets are received. Generally not well, right? We read the stories about uh, Jeremiah or about Elijah or about um, others in the minor prophets and those kind of things, right? They're not really received well, particularly by the religious leaders because they're in the process of speaking truth to power and it's responded to by rebellion. They're beaten, they're killed, they're persecuted, especially by the religious leaders. In fact, Jesus is going to highlight this in a couple chapters when he's talking about the woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, you are the descendants of those men that are guilty of the righteous blood from Abel all the way to Zechariah, whom you killed between the sanctuary and the altar. It's a stinging indictment. Because Jesus is saying, all these righteous men have come and they've tried desperately to help you get back to obedience with me, and you've met them with nothing but violence. But God is merciful, and God wants the people to come back to him. So ultimately, in this parable, he sends his son. Because he says, they didn't respect my servants, but surely they're going to respect my son. But what happens? God sends his son, and instead of recognizing their rebellion and repenting, they see the son coming, and they greedily look at the vineyard, and they say, if we kill the son, if we kill the heir, this can all be ours. So they beat him, and they throw him out of the garden, and they kill him. They've greedily hoarded this vineyard, and Jesus asked the Pharisees pointedly, what's the master going to do? when he comes, now that his servants have been beaten and killed, and now you've murdered the heir and his son. And the Pharisees say, the master's going to come, and he's going to put the wretches to death, and he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else that's going to give him the just fruit that he is owed. 
Israel's leaders have consistently responded to God's faithful call for them to come back to relationship with wickedness and hardness of heart. And ultimately, they've killed the son. And what's going to happen is the kingdom, the great gift that they were given, is now going to be taken from them and given to somebody else. See, Israel was supposed to be that shining example, that beacon that pointed people to right worship of God, but they've forgotten their mission, and now it's going to be taken away from them. The great gift that was once theirs, they'll now be dispossessed of. And the church will ultimately bear this fruit instead. Because in a week when we worship and celebrate together about Jesus' resurrection, several key things happen during that. One of those is that the veil is going to be torn in the sanctuary. There's no longer going to be a separation between man and God because through Jesus, now we're going to have direct access. The prophecies of the Spirit being poured out widely are going to come to fulfillment a little bit later. And Jew and Gentile together are going to spread the name of Jesus throughout the world as we've been studying in Acts. Jesus wants to drive the point home more for these religious leaders of the consequences of rejecting the Son. So he reminds them of two prophecies about himself. One comes from Psalm 18, and another one comes from the book of Daniel. In 118, it talks about the stone that was rejected. So this rejected son is now going to become the cornerstone of his church. In the book of Daniel, it references what's going to happen when he comes back. Because in Daniel, it references how Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and he dreams of this statue. And the statue is in four parts, and it represents worldly kingdoms. And each part gets progressively less and less valuable until you end up with the feet that are made out of mud and iron. And then out of nowhere, this asteroid comes or this rock from the sky comes and crushes the statue. And what Jesus is doing is he's claiming this about himself that he's going to be rejected by the people, but he's going to be the cornerstone of the church. And when he returns, he's going to be that stone that was mentioned in Daniel 2 that's going to crush all worldly kingdoms, and he's going to be our true and righteous and conquering king present with us. Jesus is now our great high priest. And he's the one that gives us direct action to God. The parable is for Israel's leaders and for the people to understand what they've done and bring them to conviction and help them understand what's about to happen. And they're left with a choice. As we read on in 45 and 46, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, these, or heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared that the crowd or they feared the crowds because they held him as a prophet. So they've been given a direct indictment. Jesus has told them the story of Israel that they would have memorized from the Old Testament, and he has referenced prophecies that they would know well what this means. It's a stinging indictment. It's something that's direct to them to try to bring them to a point of conviction and repentance. And they hear this story as he teaches the crowd. All these familiar symbols, but instead of responding with repentance, they respond with more hardness of heart and wickedness. Jesus has foreshadowed for them what is going to happen based off the covenant promises, and they still won't budge. Verse 
It's made plain to them, and they're forced to respond. But instead of responding with right repentance, they respond with wickedness. Their hearts are hardened, and they see this indictment not as a call to repentance, but as a threat to their power, their, their worldly power. And they respond by continuing in their murderous plan. They want to arrest the son, and they uh, want to ultimately kill him. And they're only stopped in this moment by fear of the crowd. They know Jesus has spoke truth to them, and they understand that he's talking about what's coming next, but they don't want to do anything because of the crowd. When we think about these Pharisees at this moment, we can think about tiny men and tiny kingdoms. They've missed the big picture, and they're trying desperately to hold on to small power when they could be a part of God's bigger story. Leaders have responded with wickedness, but the crowd is still open. That's why they fear them. Because as we celebrate today on Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's met with adoration. He's met with a crowd that meets him and says, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is it. Messiah has come. And that ultimately is where we get this story because the leaders begin to question whether Jesus has authority to receive this adoration. The crowd perceives that something new and something different has come, but the leaders want to question their adoration. And by the end of the week, under the leader's influence, many will change their tune from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. The choice of the crowd and the choice of the leaders is our own choice today. This is very much a story for Israel and a story for them to understand that the Son has come, but it's also a story for us. Because the gospel is divisive. When Jesus speaks about himself, he makes exclusive truth claims that he is the way of salvation. He is the one true son of God. That he has come to offer us life and life eternal. It forces us to make a choice just like those leaders and just like the crowd. He's either the exclusive way of salvation or he's not. We can choose faith and repentance or we can choose hardness of heart, and wickedness. Jesus tells this parable both to convict and call to repentance. And just like the crowd, and just like the leaders, we have the same choice. At the beginning of the week, he's invited into Jerusalem as the new Messiah that they've been waiting for. By the end of the week, he's going to die a sacrificial death on an old rugged cross. And as we celebrate next Sunday... Not only did he live the perfect life of obedience that we could not and die a sacrificial death in our place, but, praise God, he's going to raise from the dead. And he's going to defeat sin and death and hell forevermore on our behalf. He went through what we deserved and took on our punishment for us. We can choose to follow him in that by placing saving trust in him through faith and repentance. When we think about this critical choice, this is a choice that is literally life and death. This is something that must be made, and it's something that um, if you have any questions about, please, before you leave here today, today can be your day of decision. You can come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Tommy, you can talk to a Sunday school teacher. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. As we get ready for our final song here, I pray that we would use this as a time of reflection, that if there's business that you need to do with the Lord, the altar's open.
and just follow him as he leads. Pastor Tommy.